Well, we today are continuing in the spiritual warfare series, and we find ourselves in the second part of Ephesians 6, verse 17, on the sword of the Spirit. So we first put on our belt, and that is the belt of truth, the truth being the Word of God. Secondly, we put on the breastplate of righteousness. Thirdly, our feet, we put on our boots there, which is the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then we take on the shield of faith, which is the size of a door, is the one mentioned here. It's actually called door. It's a big shield, and we hook it together with other shields and protect the whole, the whole military group. And then last week, we looked at the helmet of salvation. What a great study that was. Several people said, man, I, I never got it till last week. Um, the headshot. You know, if I were a warrior and I had a chance to go at somebody's head, absolutely. Satan wants the headshot, which is our salvation. And to have the security to know that we know that we know that God has promised us we would not perish and have everlasting life. How important that is. And today now, we're looking at the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The sword here, it's the word makaira. Makaira. There are several different types of swords. This one is the standard one carried by a Roman soldier. A devastating weapon. Very sharp. It could take, it could literally shear right through a bronze helmet. It was a large knife. About, it could be anywhere from 6 inches to 18 inches in length. It was put on the belt in a sheath. And uh, it was used for hand-to-hand -hand combat. And we want to make note, it's not just a sword. It's a sword of the Spirit. I love swords. Any movie that has a sword in it, I watch. I love the King Arthur one, you know, where he takes the sword out of the stone. And it's a magical sword that doesn't seem you can lose if you have that sword. Well, guys... We do not have a regular sword. We have actually the spirit sword. It's ours. We get to use it. But not only is it the spirit sword, the sword itself is the spirit. Isn't that incredible? Just pull that out of your sheath. You know, I don't know if it makes any Star Wars noises, but um, it's the spirit sword, but he's letting us use it. And it's actually the spirit himself. How do you feel about fighting in the battle now? Pretty confident, don't you? Woohoo, we got the spirit himself is the sword. And we have the sword of the spirit. How powerful that is. Paul tells us plainly in 2 Corinthians 10.4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Carniasada, right? Earthly, fleshly. 
It's not of this earth. We're not limited by an earthly sword, but a mighty, it's mighty in God pulling down strongholds, in particular, the spirit sword we get to use, and it is the spirit himself, is the sword. You know, Peter, <laughs> as cute as he was with his little sword, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? He whips out his sword, and you know, there's a servant of the high priest. He doesn't have a sword, but he probably swings at his head and cuts his ear off. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Put it away. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And then he puts the ear back on the high priest servants, probably a little crooked. So every time he looked in the mirror, he would remember, Jesus, miracle. But it, it wouldn't work, right? And I love that. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Think of that. If we are living by the Spirit and living by the sword of the Spirit, then we'll die by the, <laughs> in the Spirit. I like that, but not the fleshly sword. You don't want to die fighting a fleshly battle. And if you had a fleshly battle and you swing at a demon, it would just go right through him. It wouldn't affect him even a little bit. Boy, how, what are some details of this Spirit sword? He tells us in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God, it's number one, living. We got a living sword. Actually, it can talk to us. Our sword can talk to us. It's alive. And it's powerful. How powerful? It's God. <laughs> Almighty, all powerful. He can, that sword can talk to us. The sword's all-powerful. It's sharper than any other two-edged sword. There is no sword in existence or ever can be in existence that's sharper than the sword of the Spirit. And it actually can be used, as big and as powerful as it is, it can be used like a scalpel in the hands of a doctor cutting between the bone and the marrow. And in the spiritual sense, cutting between the soul and the spirit. So it would help us to reveal the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You know, interesting, after I put my notes together last night, <laughs> I, I read a, a sermon by Spurgeon on this. And he had the most interesting insight. And he said that we shouldn't be fighting Satan in the church. We shouldn't be fighting the demons in the church. We should be fighting them on the outside and they never make it inside the church. And he pointed out that England has lasted as a nation because every time they hear somebody's coming to fight them, they go over and fight them on their territory, not on England's territory. They don't want to fight you in, they don't want to fight in their own yard. They want to fight in somebody else's yard. And he said, I, I love this because I can go out with the word of God and all I got to say is, God loves you. 
the thoughts, the intents. It cuts deep. It cuts accurately. Christ died for your sins. We have no idea that that right there was sharper than any cut that person has ever gotten and a precise hit right between the spirit and the soul. He said when we go out to share the word, what's it say in Isaiah? The word never returns void. It's living. It always accomplishes what it was sent out to do. So we cut them, but the cut remains. We pierce exactly the spot, and it never stops piercing. And he said, we as warriors are not warriors to rally together in the castle. We're warriors that are meant to go out to the battlefield. And anybody wise wants to fight in another country, not in their own country. Anyway, that's an extra point that I had to throw in there because it spoke to me so deeply. It also makes it clear that this sword comes from the Spirit. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture, the very first word of Genesis to the last word of Revelation, is given by inspiration. Literally, that reads in the Greek, God breathed. All Scripture is God breathed. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. Do you see all the different type of operations the word of God does? Sometimes it's the truth, and you know the truth, it'll set you free. Sometimes it's a reproof or correction. Sometimes it's piercing you so you know what's righteous and be able to walk in it. Through the sword of the Spirit, listen. The man of God is complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, you, you, you think about it. When Paul was looking at the Roman soldier, did he see a spear? I think he did. Did he see bow and arrows? Yes, he did. No need. We just need one weapon and become skilled in that one weapon. Be focused with that one weapon. We can defeat the enemy. No spear, no arrows, <laughs> nothing else needed. Just the sword. Peter makes it clear that we understand that it's not polluted. It's not watered down. You say, well, men wrote it. We got to sort of figure out which part was from the flesh and which part was from the spirit. No, 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 no. All the word of God is 100% spirit, even though he used man. In 2 Peter 1, 20, 21, he tells us that. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is any private interpretation. You know, it, 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 other modern translations say it better. They actually say from a private origin or from a private origination. In other words, none of it was from the Apostle Paul. None of it was from Peter. None of it was from their origination. For prophecy, which is all scripture is prophecy. The word prophecy means the, 
It can mean a future telling, but most of the time the word prophecy means a foretelling, uh, the word of God being spoken in power. And this is what he's saying, that all the word of God spoken in power never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting looking at that word moved in the New Testament. It's really interesting, but just to focus on one location. When Paul's ship was going to wreck on the island of Maltus, before it got there, Paul talks about how the big hurricane took the boat and they had to cut the sails away so the boat didn't flip over, but they had no power to control the boat. The boat was completely being moved, completely being driven by that hurricane and they just had to sit still and let it happen. This is the word. These men of God, they were moved. They could not not write. And they could not not write anything of themselves. All that they wrote was by an overwhelming moving of the Spirit. And they knew it. Peter even mentions everything that Paul wrote is the Word of God, even though it's hard to understand. Jesus, throughout the Bible, especially as we come to the end times, wants us to know that the sword of the Spirit, it's in our hands, it's God's Spirit, we get to use it. The sword itself is Spirit. But remember in John, everything the Spirit says comes from Jesus. Right? Jesus says the Spirit will take of mine and give to you. Just as Jesus said over 12 times in the Gospel of John, of myself I say nothing. All that I say First, I got from the Father. The Father spoke it to me, then I spoke it to you. Don't glory in me. All glory go to the Father. Interesting. Jesus now says the same with the Spirit. The third person of the Trinity will not speak on his own. He'll only speak that which comes from me. Why is that important? Because this sword of the Spirit is, if you would, coming right out of the mouth of Jesus Isaiah 11, 4, so many verses on this. I'm just going to share a few. It says, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 talks about destroying the Antichrist. Then that lawless one, the Antichrist, the one who's revealed him, the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Revelation 1.16, out of his mouth, Jesus went the sharp two-edged sword. In, in Revelation 2.12, he who has the sharp two-edged sword, Revelation 2.16, I will fight against them. This is in uh, referring to the, the, the Valley of Armageddon, the final battle. I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let's, let's recap. I have the sword, which is the Spirit. It's from the Spirit. It's actually His sword. It's the Spirit's sword. And now we find that the Spirit took it from the mouth of Jesus. Nothing sharper, living, powerful. It does spiritual work accurately like the scaffold of a doctor. All powerful. Nothing sharper. Nothing more powerful. 
And it's spiritual. It will do the spiritual work. Can we see the spiritual work with our eyes? Not, not usually. I, I can tell you when I was a youth pastor, especially with junior hires and high schoolers, you, you could never tell. Some of them learn to look very, and they have no idea what's being said. Other ones look like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to get out of here. And they come up afterwards, and every word they took, every word spoke deeply to them. You can't tell. But guess what? When we go out and slash somebody, it will never stop slashing. Isn't that amazing? We can just simply say to the guy at the gas station, God spoke this to me today out of the psalm. If I meditate in his word day and night. Do you meditate in God's word? You should. See you later. Guess what? That will never stop hounding him. There was a friend of mine who was the, one of the main Jehovah Witness guys over all of England. His name was Peter um, Barnes. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, honey. My other half a brain over there. My good friend, Peter, uh, he, he, he passed away a couple of decades ago, but he discipled me. And uh, he had, then came over to... United States, and he was over all of Southern California. And he had said he went in his lifetime, I can't remember how many, 30,000 homes. And out of 30,000 homes, only five times did the Christian say, you're wrong, let me share this verse with you. And those five verses nagged him and nagged him, wouldn't let him sleep, wouldn't let him be at rest. And one of the people had said to them, here's the verse, and you need to read the entire New Testament for yourself. And finally, he did that. He got radically saved. Uh, it was an amazing miracle. But his testimony was that all five of those verses affected one of the top Jehovah Witnesses of the world. And it's those verses that led him. He came to Christ on his own reading the New Testament after that. Aren't you glad we have such a powerful weapon right from the mouth of God? Spiritually always effective, always victorious, whether we see it or not. What a wonderful weapon. Of course we need no other weapon. And now it tells us which is the word of God. So let's, let's take a note. The very first thing we put on is the word of God, the truth, the belt of truth. Now, the last thing we put on is what? The sword. We take up the sword, the word of God again. Now, it's interesting that the Bible has two distinct words for the word in the Greek. One is logos, which is the written word. The other is rhema, which is the spirit word daily, seasonally, that speaks into your heart as needed. 
So Jesus, speaking about in future self, we, we know how we can get the rhema. Here's how Jesus got the rhema. Isaiah 50, verse 4, the Lord God has given me, this is Jesus, this is Jesus speaking about one day when he would be in human flesh. He says, the tongue of the learned, in the Greek Septuagint, it's the word disciple, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as a learned or as a disciple. So we ask ourselves, how did Jesus get that amazing word for the rich young ruler or the woman caught in the act of adultery or the woman at the well or that, that word for the Pharisees that put them in their place? He received it as a rhema word, that sword of the spirit. You can go on in Isaiah 5 and 6 and see that this clearly speaks of Jesus and no other. And in your Bible, you'll see that given me, it's actually in the capital M because it can be no other. So we have the Logos and we have the Rhema. We need them both. The Logos, we read it, we study it. We, we, we want to be workers diligently in the Logos. A matter of fact, the belt of truth is the word of God. You'll know the truth. Abide in my word. You know the truth. Sanctify them by your truth, which is the word of God is truth. And in Psalms 119, verse 160, the, the entirety of your word is truth. All of the Bible. I, I just want to encourage you again. If you sat down to read the Bible and you read an hour a day and you timed it, it would take you 72 days. 72 hours. You, you, can, you can look on on. Type in the whole Bible in YouTube uh, and some guy reading it to you. You'll see every one of them. It was right between 71 and 72 hours, depending on the translation but, and depending on how quick you read. But on, on a slow, slow reading pace, not a fast reading pace, 72 hours. George Mueller, the great man of God who had an orphanage of, of thousands, he said every Christian should read the entire Bible every season of his life, four seasons in a year. Which is really doable, isn't it? 72 hours. That's not that much. So that would be really breaking it down to about 15, 20 minutes a day. Every quarter, every season, you would read the entire Bible. Pretty interesting, isn't it? So the Bible isn't so big that it's overwhelming to us. It's not so small that it's insufficient. So it's really about will. It's really about desire. It's really about maturity, isn't it? And so again, we know we need to put on the belt. How do we put on the belt? It's the Logos. We just read it, meditate on it, ask God to speak to us in it. Jesus, interesting, when we read his prayer in John 17, it sounds like he says the same thing twice. He says in John 17, 8, Father, I've given them your words, which you have given me. But then in John 17, 14, he says, and again, I have given them your word. Well, you just said that in verse 8. But in verse 8, it's the word rhema. And then in verse 14, of John 17, it's the word logos. I gave them the belt of truth. 
the Logos, and I gave them the sword, the word from my mouth, that two-edged sword. So the Logos, there's so many blessings with the Logos. It's overwhelming. You know what? If you, if you were to ask the question, if I were to do just one Christian duty, when I say duty, I mean prayer is a duty, coming to church is a duty, reading your Bible is a duty, sharing your faith is a duty, loving your wife as Christ loves the church is a duty, right? Because sometimes we feel like doing it, but most of the time we don't. Most of the time, if you exercise, you don't feel like exercising, Vacuuming, taking the trash out. Oh, I feel like taking the trash out. Oh, boy, oh, we don't have enough trash. Honey, can you start, you know. It's a duty. We just do it because we don't want maggots in the house. Okay? So most of life is duty with a few happy moments sprinkled in between. But if you were to ask yourself, if you only had time for one duty, what is the duty that God blesses Above all, clearly, it's the Logos. It's reading the word of God and meditating on it. Psalms 1, you guys know that. If you'll meditate in it day and night, you'll bear fruit in your season, your leaf won't wither. Whatever you do shall prosper. Wow, everything you do will prosper at work, in the home, in the country, in the city, in the kneading bowl, in the workplace. Isn't that what it says in Deuteronomy 28? If we walk in obedience to blessings, well, he gives it right from the word. Joshua 1.8, he told him the same thing. If you don't turn to the right or left, but you meditate in it and do what it says, you'll prosper and have good success to a very insecure, timid guy who was overwhelmed. Psalms 119.9, a young man will cleanse his way if he's in the Logos. The lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Boy, that's a blessing. Have the light in a dark place. The world's a very dark place. David says, I'm wiser than my teachers. I'm wiser than the ancients because of God's word. And again, you hide God's word in your heart, you won't sin against him. So now we look at the rhema. It's, it's interesting. If we look at the rhema, it sort of surprises us as we read the New Testament, because we think we would have saw Logos where we see actually the word Rhema. I think of that wonderful story of Mary as we're heading into the Christmas season. She says, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your Rhema. She says to the angel Gabriel. And then in Luke 2.19, Mary kept all these words of rhema, and pondered them in her heart. Is liturgy how it reads. Boy, there's so many. I'm not going to look at too much more, but Matthew 4, 4. He answered and said, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every, what? Word, rhema, that proceeds from the mouth of God. See, a lot of people think that says logos. It's by reading and meditating. No, it's not. What does it say in Isaiah 50, verse 4 of Jesus? He awakened morning by morning. The father woke him up. He didn't like it. He wasn't rebellious, nor did he turn his back, but he wasn't happy about it either. (laughs) 
but he gave his ear to hear as a disciple, as a learner. And then he had the word, not just for his own soul, but he had the word for the weary in the day. Man, there's many good works that we should walk in, but we don't. Man can't live by carne asada and, and uh, tostadas and uh, In-N-Out burgers alone. <laughs> we need the spiritual food, which is listening to that word that comes from the mouth of Jesus through the spirit. And with that sword, we conquer. Interesting in Luke 137, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Actually, in the Greek, it reads, no word of God, no rhema word will ever fail. No rhema word will ever fail. And there's many, many more. But moving right on, let's take a look at Jesus with the sword of the Spirit in his hand. Boy, talking about a great warrior, not fighting some, you know, private or sergeant demons. He's fighting the general himself, isn't he? Satan. And there in that story, you guys know when Jesus was fasting for 40 days, he showed up. And interesting that Satan's main plan, his strategy, was twist spiritual truth to throw Jesus off to disobey God by Scripture. Boy, isn't that the way it often works for us Christians? They know that you come up and say, hey, here's some LSD, take it. We're going to go, no, 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 no. So Satan knows. Ah, we got to give them Scripture and twist it. And here's an obscure Scripture they don't even know out of the book of Job or out of... Zechariah, and, and, and this, will, this will mess them up. It, it's amazing how demonic Satan is. I saw a thing this week on YouTube, and it was these people that had been molested holding up signs, and every sign was blasting Jesus. If you really exist, Jesus, where were you when I was a child being molested? And then the next sign. It was interesting. Everyone was trying to blast God and Christianity. Another person wrote, yeah, you must really love me. You died for a weekend. You had a difficult, long weekend, and that's supposed to save me. How stupid is Christianity? Twisted, isn't it? Trying, as all cults do, as all lies do, Minimize Jesus. The Muslims, he's a prophet. Jehovah's Witnesses, he's an angel. Mormons, Jesus is one of many, many infinite amount of gods. Let's minimize Jesus. But Jesus comes back and each time, notice he says, it is written. And what does he have? The exact verse for the exact situation. And I want to make it note that Jesus didn't read it that morning because he couldn't carry around a scroll, right? This is where reading the Logos and meditating on it, having 
all the verses of the Bible in our minds and the Lord, the Holy Spirit can bring it to the forefront. Well, Satan comes with another verse. Notice the second temptation. He comes back with Jesus. It is written. He shall give angels charge over you that their hands shall not bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. So Satan comes back with Jesus. It is written. Jesus comes back. It is written. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And Satan comes back and it's just the gall of this guy. He shows them all the kingdoms of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. If you bow and worship me. I think he realized he had already lost at this point. Because <laughs> he's, he's going for the gusto. But Jesus comes back again. Away with you, Satan. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And the devil left and angels came and ministered to him, it tells us in Matthew. In Luke, he said, get behind me, Satan. Clear victory, Jesus conquering over Satan. But how does that story end? Satan's going to come back later at a more opportune time. He wasn't, even though he clearly lost, it didn't detour him to try again. Right? That's the point. Here's the final point of this morning's sermon. We're not to just not be conquered. Everything up to this point has been really defensive. The helmet, the breastplate, the shoes, the shield. But now this is a clear command to not just not be conquered and to stand, but now to go out and conquer. I think of that mighty man of David, Eleazar. He said, um, this is your territory that you need to protect. And all the men fled when the Philistines gathered. But this man, Eleazar, he continued fighting even when his hand became weary. Afterwards, they couldn't get his hand off the sword. It was stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. Paul again tells us that our weapons of warfare are what? Mighty in God. It's not like we oh, this one, oh, great, that's great. You know, we're fighting this spiritual host of wickedness, and you guys show up with your little eight-inch sword. They got arrows and spears, and you got a sword. That's it. No bow and arrows, no spear. And we say, shut up, stand back, watch out. This isn't my spirit. This is a spirit's sword. It's right from the mouth of Jesus. There is nothing more powerful and there's nothing more needed. There's nothing sharper. It's living. It's powerful. It's going to do a very powerful work. It shall win the day. It's a mighty sword. Leviticus 26, 7 you will chase your enemies and they shall fall by what? The sword before you. Leviticus 26, 8. Five of you shall chase a hundred. A hundred of you shall chase 10,000 to flight. Your enemy shall fall by what? The sword before you. In Zechariah, 
The word of the Lord came to Zerubbabel. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's not by human effort. It's not by human, it's not by human organization and skills, but by my spirit, says the Lord, that this mountain shall come down, that the, it'll all become a plain. And God speaking to us, not by might nor by power, but by the sword of the spirit, this demonic mountain shall be brought down. Isaiah 54, 17 says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. I like that. The arrows, the fiery arrows are snuffed out. The spears don't affect our breastplate of righteousness. The spear hits, boom, falls. Their sword hits our sword and it, their sword crumbles into pieces. And none of their swords even put a dent in our sword. And so we strike and we one swoop. It's a two-edged sword. We swoop to the right and five demons fall. We swoop back the opposite way and a hundred demons fall. And they poke and they pierce and they shoot. And not even a tiny bit of blood is spilt by us. Because no weapon formed against us shall prosper. In 1 John 2.14, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Amen. So what do I say today as we look at this final piece of our warfare Prepare ourselves for battle is what I say. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. In Exodus 15, 3, in the New Living Translation, it says the Lord is a warrior. <laughs> Yahweh is his name. I always find it amazing how Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he says, when I come to earth, and for a thousand years I rule from Jerusalem, I'm going to be sitting on David's throne. Isn't that crazy? Our Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is excited about sitting on David's throne. David, as a young man, was a warrior. He was known as a great warrior. When all were fleeing, he was killing giants. And the Lord says, I'll be a warrior. Boy, we see that in Revelation, don't we? He's coming out of heaven, and he is a warrior, going into the midst of the battle. In Joel 3, 9, proclaim among the nations, all the peoples, prepare for war. Wake up, you mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. In Deuteronomy 20, the priest would say be to all the people before the war started, it shall be when you are on the verge of the battle, the priest shall approach and speak to the people, and she, he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you're on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. The Lord your God is he who goes with you, 
to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. Romans 8, 37. We are what? More than conquerors. We're not just warriors. We are winning warriors. We are fighting a battle that we will win if we'll fight. If we will be warriors. I said a few weeks ago, there's people that come to church saying, uh, I realize the Lord's putting an army together, but I'll be a civilian. I'll be a blacksmith. I'll make the horseshoes for everybody's horse. I'll uh, sharpen up people's swords, but uh, as for me, I'm, I don't want to be a warrior. There are no civilians <laughs> in God's kingdom. Everybody has to be a warrior because all of us are going to have to face the enemy. The young, the old, the men, the women, the children. You parents who are parenting and raising up your kids, you've got to raise up warriors. Boy, we see it today, don't we? The kids from church will graduate from high school. They go off to college. Are they going into a war, guys? 80% of them never return to church. I think we have lost the last generation, maybe even two, because we did not raise up warriors who understood the logos, the belt of truth, and they never were explained to the importance of the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Right? But today's a new day. And God has wonderfully equipped us for all that we need for life and godliness through his word. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. And God, we know that you are speaking to each and every one of us in a specific, different way. As wonderful as this sermon is, it really doesn't do its full work unless it becomes a rhema in each of our hearts, in each of our ears. Lord, please, by your grace, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts, Lord, as we meditate on these things. Give us a heart to perceive all that your spirit is saying. And make us warriors to go out to battle, not to wait till they come to our shores, but go out into the highways and the byways and fight the battle in their yards, in their doors, in their territory. Let us fight and win. We know that no weapons formed against us will prosper. And we know, Lord, that you, <laughs> it's you. It's your word from your mouth. It's your spirit is our sword. Nothing more powerful, nothing more precious, nothing more healing, nothing more piercing, nothing more cutting than the one who has torn us and cut us and bruised us that you might heal us. Lord, let us go out and spread the word that will never return void. And let us be men and women of God after your own heart who do all your will. If there's anybody here today that 
is not born again, if there needs anybody listening to this sermon 10 years from now, just right now, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. He's rich to all who call upon his name. Jesus, save me. I believe that you alone are Savior, that you took all my sin and were punished for all my sins on the cross. You were buried, and on the third day you rose from the dead, according to the scripture. I receive your gift to me of eternal life. And now, Lord, give me grace to start following you with all my heart, to love you with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, my strength, and love my neighbor as myself in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.